When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant, and Dave Ansell. What's a great story that's happened in science this week, Dave? They've found uh, found ice on an asteroid. Asteroids are sort of small lumps of rock and stuff. Mm -hmm. There's quite a lot of them between uh, Mars and Jupiter. And they've been looking at one of these asteroids using an infrared telescope. And you can measure the light coming back on it and different substances um, reflect different colours of light differently well. And they've noticed quite a lot of water on it on the surface. And they've seen organic compounds, so things with carbon and hydrogen, the sort of thing, which building blocks of life. Um, And this is quite surprising because from the sort of temperature it is out there, and it's a very, very hard vacuum, so water ought to just evaporate. Even even ice, as ice, it should evaporate. So um, they think it must be being supplied from possibly inside the um, thing. So it could, it's not just a crust on the outside, it's getting supplied somehow. Yeah. And it's interesting because it could be that um, these are all building blo- blocks of life, and it could be that um, the building blocks of life on Earth, which were created, could have been supplied by asteroids because there's a period um, of very heavy bombardment by asteroids and comets and things and during the Earth's early life. And so if these bombard- bombarded down, they're going to bring down lots and lots of water and lots and lots of these organic compounds, which could have just by chance somehow started reproducing and eventually got life. There could be somebody up there living in a little cave somewhere. There are also other um, theories that life could have actually have been transferred to Earth on things like this. So it could have started off in an, on another planet or another sort of planetoid oh. and then got transferred through space and then crashed into Earth from an asteroid. They've actually taken bacteria up into um, onto satellites and, despite, and they've sort of had some types of bacteria sitting out in full sunlight and sunlight coming directly from the sun which hasn't been filtered by our atmosphere is really nasty stuff. Yeah. lots of ultraviolet light in it. It's really, really destructive for anything living. But bacteria have survived that for several months. Mm. So who knows? Who we knows? might all be Martians. It's all cosmic. Let's start our questions off then tonight for Dr Dave. Francis in Peterborough has given us a call and she would like to know, Dave, how are batteries recycled? Basically, in a very similar way to anything else, um, the point of recycling is to get out all of the uh, important materials, which useful materials which you can use again. Um, so they're going to basically break the back batteries up. I don't know the details of the process, but I mean probably by the process of kind of chewing them up and then um, probably actually taking them apart if possible so as you keep the lumps of stuff in as big a lumps as possible. Um, and then possibly you might have to do some chemical processes just to separate everything out. And then they grind it all up once you've purified it and send it back to manufacturers who want the materials. He knows, you know. Um, Bob in Essex says, Why is it that a red sunset means a fine day, but a red sunrise means a bad day? 
Yes, it's the old um, rhyme, isn't it? It doesn't work all the time, but it's giving you a fairly good idea. It's to do with the way the weather works in this country. Basically, the weather tends to all be coming from the west. So especially if it's ever going to be wet, um, although the wet rain clouds are coming in from the west. And so you can tell if there's, and if there's a load of rain clouds coming in from the west, then you're not going to get a, a nice red sunset because the sun's going to be behind a cloud. Um, however, if you're getting a nice red sunrise, so you can basically if you can see the sun at sunrise, that doesn't tell you anything about the wet, 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 wet rain clouds because that tells you what the, whether it was raining yet today or yesterday. Sorry, if it, not whether it was raining, whether it was clear today or yesterday, because the sunrise is in the east, which is where all the weather goes to after it's been over your head. Um, and I think there is probably a general tendency that the rain, so so the um, rain comes from the west, goes to the east. Right. If, if if the sun's setting, then it's in the west. And if you can see the sun in the west, it means that there's no clouds there. Okay. Because you can see the sun, and therefore it's going to be clear for a while because there's no clouds in the west. And but if the sun is rising, then it might be clear over in the east. But that doesn't tell you anything about what's coming on in the future. And also, if rain clouds are about the same sort of size as you can see, maybe roughly, maybe sort of 50, 60 miles across, then if, if there isn't one to the east, probably it means there is another one coming soon because of the, we get so many rain clouds this this part of the world. So if you can see, see a nice sunrise, probably there's a rain cloud coming on the other side of the um, sky. Mm. All right. Now, our next question comes from Harry, and it's on email. And it's one of those things that I'd never thought about before, but Harry says, um, hello, what would happen if all the people in China jumped at the same time? That is a very good question. It's a bit of madness. Who <laughs> <laughs> wants to know that? Come on. Lots of people talk about that quite often, I think. There's quite a lot of people in China, over a billion of them, so let's say a billion, that's nice, easy numbers. Yep. Um, so they weigh about 60 kilograms each, which is possibly an overestimate, as quite a lot of them are going to be kids. Um, so that's going to be about 60 billion kilograms, or 60 million tonnes. Okay? So that right. sounds like it's pretty heavy, it's quite a lot of weight. Yeah. The Earth is really quite big, though. So the Earth is actually got six with 24 zeros after it. Right. Kilograms. Okay. So now, so if all those people jump up by metre, um, the 60, 60 billion kilograms divided by six with 24 zeros after it is actually about 10 with another, one with 14 zeros after it. So one, one times 10 to the 14th. So it's very so, so one, one divided by ten to the ten with fourteen zeros one with fourteen zeros after it. Is anybody lost time? So I've that's not point not 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 one one-th of the distance about that m- number of meters. Right. So the Earth overall, if it did move, it would move a minute amount so small you couldn't measure it. And also, the Earth isn't very rigid. Uh-huh. So in fact, what would happen is the Earth would probably deform and it wouldn't move as a body. It would kind of wobble and you get waves moving out about it which is actually what you call an earthquake and in fact I worked this out and if all the energy they used to jump got transferred into the rock that would create an earthquake of about 4 or 4 or 5 on the Richter scale it's a very small earthquake you might just about notice if you're lying somewhere very very still. Let's keep China still then in that case, no jumping up and down over there Let's go to our next question. Um, Mike has called in to say, stainless steel, why and how is it stainless? Because I can never get the saucepan stainless. <laughs> uh, why and how is it stainless? Thank you, Mike, for your question. Dave? A very good question. Stainless steel, it's mostly iron, like normal steels. Yep. But it's actually got another element mixed in, other elements mixed into it, particularly chromium. 
chrome rim is the stuff which makes very very shiny bumpers they kind of chrome bumpers and you get that really shiny kind of 1950s american look and the reason why it stays so shiny is a particular property of chromium in that uh, it's like aluminium aluminium does the same thing uh, when chromium starts to oxidize so it's essentially the equivalent of rusting it develops a layer on the outside a very very thin layer of chromium oxide which protects the metal underneath from the oxygen so it kind of get, makes its own protective layer and so it stops rusting anymore and the same thing happens with aluminium aluminium actually is incredibly reactive and if it didn't do this it would rust away in um, mm. a few days mm. probably definitely a few weeks but because it forms this layer of aluminium oxide on the outside it protects it and it doesn't um, oxidize anymore um, and the chromium in the stainless steel does the same thing and you get this layer of chromium oxide on the surface stopping it rusting and it's nice and stainless and you don't get have to eat rust with, on your knives and forks Hmm. OK, thank you for that. I think I'm there with that one. Uh, Dom, um, Dominic has said, uh, it's from Newmarket, he says, how and why does cod liver oil help you to concentrate? That is... Um, various people have been pushing this for a while. Um, there's, evident, there's a little bit of evidence for it. I think there's definitely evidence that there are... Um, various vitamins in fish and fish Mm. oils which if you're depleted of them isn't good for your brain but whether taking lots more of them actually helps your brain is another question in fact there was quite a big study done recently in the last couple of weeks um, where they've done a very big study and they found that there's actually no evidence that it has any effect at all fish oils in general on people's brain it doesn't doesn't seem to have any effect on the elderly or children if you do a very big study and do it properly now dave um i've no idea what this is but what does avogadro's number represent avogadro's number avogadro's yes what's that (laughs) avogadro's number is a useful number when you're doing chemistry basically in in chemistry you're interested in reactions between atoms individually so, for example, if you're acting hydrogen with oxygen, um, you need two atoms of hydrogen to react with one of oxygen. You also need two molecules of hydrogen to react with one of oxygen, and they react together to form um, two molecules of water. Now, that's very useful if you want to work out the ratios, um, the, the, the numbers of hydrogen atoms. So, so if you know that two, two molecules of hydrogen react with one molecule of oxygen, then that's great. The problem is that the numbers get really, really silly because there are about 6 times 10 to the 23 atoms of hydrogen in 1 gram of hydrogen. So if you wanted to react 1 gram of hydrogen with some oxygen, you'd have to work out how, and you wanted to work out how much mass of oxygen, and then the numbers, you'd have to multiply everything by 6 times 10 to the 23, and you'd be reacting 6 times 10 to the 23 um, atoms of hydrogen with 3 times 10 to the 23 of oxygen, and the, whole, the, number, the number of zeros all gets out of hand and it gets silly. So all Avogadro's number is is basically you say that one mole of hydrogen weighs one gram. Therefore one one mole of hydrogen react with one mole of oxygen. So oxygen, um, because each atom is heavier than hydrogen, um, it's about 16, I think. Um, 16 times heavier than hydrogen, so one gram of, um, let's say two grams of hydrogen will react with 16 grams of oxygen, or two moles of hydrogen will react with one mole of ox- oxygen to create one mole of water, uh, two moles of water. Um, and so it's basically a sort of a trick which chemists use to make the maths easier. 
Right. And involve fewer huge numbers. All right. Just to confuse the rest of us, really, I suppose. <laughs> That's science. Uh, Lisa sent an email and say, um, if the other volcano next to the volcano that's already erupted, um, if that erupts, is it true that we'll get an ice age? And if so, how will that affect us? I didn't know there was one next door to it. They were just both grumbling. There I'm is. Scared. There is a volcano right next to the one with the hideous name, which I'm not going to try and pronounce. Um, there's one called Catla, um, which is very close. And uh, when um, one uh, erupts, the other one seems to erupt quite soon afterwards. Um, it hasn't done so far. This is tent has in the past has erupted with a bigger eruption, and it would probably have slightly more effect. It might throw a little bit more ash up into the air than the one we've just had. But whether it would create an ice age, volcanoes can reduce the temperature. Mount Pinatubo, which went off in the early 90s, I think, um, is thought to have reduced the Earth's temperature about half a degree C by a couple of years. And that was a big volcano, but not a huge one by historic standards by any means. There are certainly super volcanoes which, if they did go off, um, would pump up so much ash and also um, sulphate. So you get sulphates um, go up and they form little tiny particles in the stratosphere and they take a long time to come back down. Um, they can cool down the Earth really significantly by three or four, five, three or four degrees centigrade. That doesn't sound very much, but that means um, that, the, that it would be, get very cold in the winter here. Um, a big volcano went off in about 1783 um, and all sorts of, in Iceland and that caused all sorts of havoc even in the UK um, there were people dying from um, the, the fumes coming up, which mm. were being blown down here mm. it, there were some very very cold winters which meant that lots of crops failed um, there was supposed to be a year which it was called the year without a summer because there was so much volcanic particles up in mm. the upper atmosphere that it well, the sun never really got through it. It was always going through the haze, um, and it would make it would mean that we'd be very short of food, um, certainly globally, um, probably in this country as well. Because if there's no sunlight, plants can't grow, and the animals can't eat the plants. Mm. Um, it would get very cold. It would have all sorts of negative effects, um, and it would make stopping flying for a week or so seem completely trivial. Um, they're quite rare, these really big volcanoes, ones that size every few hundred years. Really, really big ones, which could actually push us into something very like an ice age. You get a thing called super volcanoes. There's one on the Yellowstone Park, which could go off, and there's various others. People mm. don't actually know how many of them there are. Mm. Um, they could put us into an ice age for years. You get um, They emit, push out thousands of cubic kilometres of lava. All yeah, you know, over a period of a few mm. hundred years, mm. it's absolutely immense amount of lava being pushed out, and then associated with that, you get huge amounts of gases coming out, and quite a lot of dust and things. And so, and we are living in a fairly quiet volcanic, fairly vo- volcanically quiet period at the moment. And actually, um, Iceland seems to be in period, have a sort of eighty-year cycle. It's sort of you get a quite a much smaller scale again, but as you get a quiet period, which we've just had for the last fifty years, mm. then it gets more active for twenty or thirty years, and it doesn't seem to go quiet for another thirty. So probably we're going to get more volcanoes from Iceland, but unlikely that they they're going to be they would push into a really deep ice age. They might drop the temperature a bit for a while. 
If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week, we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Let's go to uh, one by email now. Now, this is from uh, Paige, who says, why do my ice cubes shrink in the freezer? Yes, because uh, I think she's asking that you'd expect that ice cubes, like water when it freezes, it expands. Yeah. But if you leave your freezer, your ice cubes in a freezer for a long time, they seem to shrink. Um, this is a process called sublimation, where mm-hmm. water can go directly from a solid to a gas. In fact, lots of things can go directly from a solid to a gas or from a gas to a solid. Going from a gas to a solid is actually how you form snow. Um, the reason why snowflakes are such pretty shapes and not balls is because they were never liquid. So, they, so the water vapour went directly from a gas to a solid. And because it was doing that, it, the, the molecules can sort of choose where they want to um, lock on to the little bit of ice which is already there. And so they form beautiful crystals. And then the um, the properties change a bit. It gets a bit more humid, a bit less humid, and so they form different places on the crystals and you get these mm. beautiful structures. And so basically what's happening is your ice cubes are evaporating very slowly directly from solid to gas and disappearing off into the uh, rest of the world. Um, sometimes you can actually find it going the other way, um, which is why you fo- the ice crystals form on the back um, where the cooling elements are mm. and you get all the frost. Mm. And frost is the same thing, um, uh, water vapour going directly from a vapour to a solid mm. sublimation. How do they stop, um, you know, how do, they, how do um, frost-free fridges work then in that case? Um, they don't actually stop the frost forming in the first place. What they do is basically um, a f- fridge is a heat pump. It pumps heat from inside the fridge to outside it. And what they do occasionally is they run it the other way. So they pump heat from outside to the inside, they heat up the cooling elements, they, they get hot enough for everything to, for all the ice to melt, mm. it kind of runs down out of the freezer, and then they start cooling again. So basically they sort of defrost themselves very mm. regularly. Mm. Is that energy efficient as well? It does use a load of energy, and it's not, it's not beautifully efficient, but it's more energy efficient than letting the ice build up. Sure. Because if you've got a great big thick layer of ice, then it insulates your, um, insulates your freezer from the cooling elements. And so they can't cool the freezer so well, so they have to get colder, which uses more energy. Mm. So it's a bit of a toss-up between the two of them. All right. <clears throat> this comes from Derek in Wallyborough on the email. He says, earlier in the week there was a clear blue sky, but with earlier trails from different aircraft that had crisscrossed the sky that had not disappeared, and it seemed to get wider, eventually turning into a haze. But there were other aircraft that appeared to fly through them with their trails that disappeared quickly. What could cause this anomaly? You certainly do get um, contrails, the sort of water which is being pushed out by the back of a plane Mm. um, through the engines, that condenses, and then that can form little sort of um, places for water droplets to grow. So if you've got someone which is wanting to form a cloud, there's too much water in the atmosphere for it to really be stable. The water wants to come out and condense. There's nothing for it to condense onto. And these little water droplets coming out from the back of the plane can um, cause more water to condense, and then you get a contrail. And then these contrails can expand, and in fact they can form huge great clouds. The Met Office saw one occurring in the last last six months. There was a nice paper about it. Um, And so, yeah, there's that. 
Um, I would have thought with the other planes flying through and the contrails disappearing, either they were at a slightly different altitude, so they're flying through air, which wasn't quite the same as the stuff which was condensing and forming and causing the contrails to expand really well. Slightly different altitude, or the air where the contrail was had um, warmed up a bit, so that the contrail was starting to evaporate anyway. But I think probably the, the planes with a slightly different altitude, air masses can be quite close together and have very different properties. And so they're probably either flying slightly below or slightly above it where the air, instead of having too much water, it didn't have enough, so they just evaporate and the contrails disappear. Dr Dave. Now, it's uh, Moolah who sent a question in by email and says, um, I love the programme and I'm now studying environmental science and this question just popped into my head. How much lava is actually inside the earth? That's a good one for you to work out, Dave. <laughs> what do you reckon? It's a very good question. Um, essentially... Depends exactly what you mean by lava. If you mean molten, actually molten rock, which is sort of runny and will flow around the place, not a huge amount. The sort of inner core of the Earth, which is sort of first thousand kilometres or so, very roughly, um, is probably quite a lot of that is molten iron, and the very inner core is solid again. And outside of that, as far as we know, there's a thing called the mantle. Now this is it isn't really molten. It's sort of it would be molten if it was out if it was at surface temp pressures, because it's under so much pressure it actually gets compressed and tends to go more solid. And it does flow. It sort of flows a bit like very very stiff plasticines. Over millions of years it will flow, but it would, certainly wouldn't run. It's certainly not what you'd think of as lava in your head. Um, when that comes up near the surface, so sort of in the middle of the oceans, mid-ocean ridges, places like Iceland, um, that then when the pressure is dropped off, bits of it do melt, but actually only a very, very small proportion of it melts, maybe only less than 5%. And then that sort of tends to all get, because there's lots of pressure, that kind of molten stuff tends to get squashed out and squashed up to the surface, and then that molten stuff is what comes out of the top hmm. and flows out of the volcanoes. So actually there's a percentage in lava, I mean many, many, many cubic kilometres, probably thousands of cubic kilometres, but compared to the Earth, a tiny amount. So there's quite a lot, but not as much as you'd expect. Hmm. All right, well, let's hope he doesn't come this way. Um, Moody again has said, uh, I'm sorry, but I've got to ask this question as well. How much smoke from burn a burning tree is carbon dioxide gas? And what does the smoke of burning wood actually consist of? Dave? Well, the stuff coming... So if you've got air reacting with wood, um, wood is basically carbohydrate, like sugar. So basically, if you burn sugar, you're going to get about... Um, one molecule of um, water for every molecule of carbon dioxide. So by volume as a gas, about half of it, half of the byproducts which aren't things like nitrogen which didn't get reacted, are going to be, of the gases, are going to be water, and about half of them are going to be carbon dioxide. By weight, it's going to be a bit more carbon dioxide, probably twice, at least twice as much carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide is quite a lot heavier than water. So what about all the other stuff? Well, OK, you can see smoke, so it can't all be gases. Some of that is going to be the water condensing and forming water little droplets. And the other stuff is going to be all of the things which, when they've burnt, form solids. So there's things like sodium, in, um, sodium and potassium, so potash and um, salt in other metals. When you burn metals, they don't form gases, they form solids. Right. And so a lot of the smoke is going to be these, um, basically ash. Ash is, the, the other, is another part of it, but ash, which is in very small particles, which goes up into the air. Also, some of it is unburnt wood. 
so if you heat up wood um, it sort of drives off before it actually all burns and reacts with the oxygen you, it drives off sort of lots of chemicals and gases which are made out of carbon and hydrogen and a bit of oxygen in there um, this is actually the process that happens when you make charcoal you're driving off all of these volatile um, compounds that mm. burn in fact if you have a candle burning and you blow it out you get the smoke coming out that that's wax vapor you can actually if you do it very quickly you can relight that wax vapor before it cools down too much and the, the flame will sort of jump back to the candle and so some of the smoke is going to be unburnt wood wood va- vapors these things some of it's going to be things which won't burn so basically ash otherwise some carbon dioxide and some water Interesting stuff. Anyway, John has sent a text in saying, Dr. Dave, presumably there are vast areas of our universe which are exposed to continuous sunshine. So why does it get colder the further you go into space or if I miss something? John, thank you very much indeed. Good question. Well, probably the deeper space you go. So the further away you get away from the sun. Yeah, the further you go into space. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, basically, if you're a source of light... Um, if you double the distance you are away from it, if it's giving out light in all directions, it's spread out over um, four times the surface. So if you think about a sphere, if you double the radius of a sphere, its area is going to quadruple. So the same amount of light is spread out over four times as much area. So the further away you get, the less intense the sunlight is. So basically there's less sunlight falling onto every square metre of Mm. you. So the further out you go, the less sunlight hits you, so the less heating up you get. So um, but you've still got the same amount of dark, deep space to um, radiate energy into because the Earth is cooling down by radiating heat energy, um, infrared energy, into deep space. So you're losing the same, you can lose the same amount of heat, but you're getting less in, so you're going to cool down until the amount of heat you're losing is the same as the amount you're getting. And so the temperatures drop the further away you get from the sun. Why um, deep space is dark is actually quite interesting um, because if you go far enough in any direction, you want to hit a star. And the reason for that is because the universe is expanding. The light, the light which is coming towards you has expanded as well. Mm-hmm. So its wavelength has got longer and less energetic, um, so colder. In fact, it's got so long that it's actually the temperature is down to about 2.7 degrees of absolute zero, so about minus 270 degrees C. Wow. So, yes. Quite something. Dave, an uh, email from Ali. Um, when a wet towel is flicked, it creates a cracking sound like a whip. Uh, what is this effect? And why does a wet towel crack louder than a dry one? I can see there's a misspent time going on <laughs> there. Just, I hate that person gets a tea towel and flicks it at you. It really hurts. Um, Dave. Okay, this is an effect like any, it basically is acting like a whip you get basically a wave travelling down the whip and because the whip gets thinner and thinner and thinner the wave actually travels faster and faster and faster and it carries on getting faster and faster and faster and with a proper bull whip the end of that whip can get going so fast that it breaks the speed of sound and then that basically produces a sonic boom like a jet, a jet aircraft and that sonic boom is very very loud and that's what you hear is a really sharp crack I think with a towel, you're not probably not actually getting to sonic boom territory, but you do get a sort of wave travelling down the towel, which gets faster and faster and faster till the end is moving very, very quickly, and that makes quite a lot of sound, and especially if it comes around and hits, hits itself, then you get a really good crack. I think the main reason why a wet towel is so much louder than a dry one is that it's he- partly it's heavier, mm-hmm. so there's more energy there, so it's going to be going faster. And also, with a dry towel, there's not much energy, and also it's 
quite damp. It's quite well damped. It absorbs quite a lot of energy as you, as you sort of wait if you wave it. Um, there's a lot of air resistance, and also all of the kind of nice smooth, um, flurry bits absorb quite a lot of energy. So a lot of energy is taken out of that wave, so it slows down. There's also less energy in the first place because it's not as heavy, whereas the wet one is nice and heavy. And also, I think there's probably it's less energy gets taken out of it as the wave goes down. Uh, very quickly from Sue, because uh, she's just sent a text. Say, if an earthquake is so strong, it can make the Earth wobble on its axis. Does this affect our measurements of time? I think a very, very, very small amount. It can. I mean, very, huge earthquakes can move the Earth's axis a little bit, and they can change the length of the day. If you, on average, move a load of mass further away from the centre of the Earth, then this Earth's got the same amount of angular momentum, same amount of total mm. rotation. If it's if stuff's further away, then it's got to rotate slower. Mm. Um, it's a bit like if you're play, playing on a roundabout. Mm. Um, if you're on the outside of the roundabout, then you're spinning quite slowly. If you kind of pull yourself into the middle, the roundabout actually speeds up. Yeah. So if 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 an earthquake moves out of mass towards the centre of the Earth, the Earth is going to speed up. If it moves out of mass further away, it will slow down. But those effects are very, very small. And also lots of less violent things than earthquakes move mass around just um, tectonics in general will push things up and down push rock up and down very slowly over a period of years even without earthquakes or without big earthquakes so these things are changing all the time how fast the earth rotating does change a little bit and that's part of the reason why the number of leap seconds which are put in at the end of centuries aren't predictable um, you can't predict them by, by mathematics. They actually have to do it by looking and seeing what direction the Earth is pointing in mm. and seeing how, how many um, rotations the Earth has made because of all these little tiny things. All right. So it does make a bit of an effect, but not a huge one, not one you'd notice. One last question that's coming from uh, John very quickly. So with all this fuss about dust clouds, why couldn't the scientists on Iceland or elsewhere have predicted the subsequent chaos? Because it's difficult. Oh. <laughs> predict, and they, they can predict volcanoes quite well, but there are quite a lot of volcanoes on Iceland. And the really bad thing with this volcano was both that it was particularly good at throwing ash into the air for its size. It wasn't a particularly big volcano. And also the wind was blowing in the wrong direction. If, if there had been southerly winds um, blowing all that ash up into, up into the Arctic, you wouldn't have heard about it. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 